Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. What has the pandemic taught us? When it comes to voting, a record number of residents embraced efforts the state made to make voting safer and easier. They took advantage of an executive order that allowed no-excuse absentee ballots in 2020. Now, Connecticut Secretary of the State Denise Merrill says it's time lawmakers make this option permanent. But she's not stopping there. She also wants the legislature to approve a proposal for early voting in the state. It's been a years-long debate in Connecticut. Will it happen this session so it shows up as a ballot question in 2022? Today, where we live, Secretary of the State Merrill joins us to talk about the future of voting. Now, what questions do you have? You can join us too, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Secretary Merrill, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Lucy. Nice to be here. I mentioned a record number of voters took advantage of absentee ballots uh, this last election. So tell us how many that was exactly. Well, uh, of a very large turnout, so we had about, uh, I don't know, a couple million voters, and uh, we had a 79% turnout overall. Of those turnout, 650,000 or so absentee ballots were filed, a much greater number than usual. Usually we get about 4% of people vote by absentee ballot, and this time it was about 35%. (laughs) And that was something that surprised you or were you expecting this kind of turnout? Oh, no, I was definitely expecting both the turnout and the number of absentee ballots um, because I never got as many calls in my office before as I did about how am I going to vote during this pandemic? Literally hundreds of people called and emailed saying, you know, they were frightened of going to the polls because they might contract the disease and they were right to be. Uh, concern because the governor was telling them to stay home, avoid large crowds. And uh, if we had not done something, I think we could have really had a problem in our polling places. Mm. Now, before the pandemic, most residents go to the polls on election day and vote in person. Now, that's normal for us here in Connecticut. But when you look at other states around our country, pretty unusual uh, when we think about the the voting laws that allow people to vote before election day in other states. Secretary Merrill. That's correct. Connecticut has among the most restrictive statutes in the country. Uh, preventing voters from voting anytime except right on election day. And those restrictions are in our state constitution, which makes them very difficult to change when you come to something like a pandemic. There's no uh, accounting for that in the state constitution. But there's only seven states totally in the country who have these restrictions entirely. And that's Alabama, Kentucky, Mississippi, Missouri, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Connecticut. It might surprise uh, some of our listeners to hear our state grouped with some of those other states, Secretary Merrill. (laughs) 
Yes, uh, you know, it's been an eye opener. We've been working on this for a, at least a decade. And um, the problem is that having these restrictions in our state constitution, and I believe we're the only state left, possibly New Hampshire, that has the restriction in the constitution. Usually these kinds of rules about who can get an absentee ballot, who can vote when, are in statute where they can be more easily changed and have more flexibility when it comes to something like an emergency situation like we had this year. When we look back uh, late last year, we know that the former president made voting by mail a partisan issue. He attacked the practice. But here in Connecticut, when you see that record number of people using uh, mail-in voting or using the drop boxes, uh, how many of them were Republican voters? You know, it was across the board. Everyone used absentee ballots when they needed to. And I think, you know, it's up to the voters to uh, make that decision. Obviously, what we want here is flexibility for people, you know, be able to make that choice for themselves. But uh, there is no partisanship involved in this. There were Republicans, Democrats, young and old, particularly, of course, seniors were the most concerned about um voting in person. So you saw a great deal of, of people over 65 using absentee ballots. But that's typical, too. You're hearing Denise Merrill here on Where We Live. She's Connecticut's Secretary of the State. As we talk about the future of voting, we know you have questions about this because I, we often hear from listeners about why don't we have early voting and what needs <laughs> to happen. So that's why we wanted to invite you back on so that you can explain this again to our listeners as we're in the legislative session. So let's talk about, uh, before we talk about early voting and making absentee ballot um, permanent, a permanent option. Can you talk about what you learned from this uh, this last uh, few months when we think about uh, sending out all of these applications uh, to voters if they wanted to vote absentee? You did get some criticism um, from some Republican lawmakers and others that were worried about the inaccurate voting rules. And so can you talk us through that process? Has, has this uh, 2020 uh, election helped you clean up that information? It actually has. Um, largely because, you know, you have to understand in Connecticut, we have a very, very decentralized process. We have 169 towns and each town conducts the election in their town uh, individually. Uh, our office does not maintain the list. Those lists are all maintained at the local level by each town. There are two registrars of voters, one Republican, one Democrat by law in each town, and they are elected officials elected by their constituents in their town. And they uh, do their best, I think, to keep up the list. The most difficult problem is, of course, people move all the time. We have a great deal of mobility, particularly in the cities. And so voters are supposed to keep up their own records and let you know when they move. But of course, as you know, that's not exactly the first thing you're thinking about when you move. And we also have, uh, there's a lot of federal law involved and state law about exactly when you take someone off a list. We are very, very careful before we take anyone off a list uh, because it is everyone's right to vote. You have to remember that. It's not like being allowed to go to the supermarket, for example. Uh, almost every adult in Connecticut is eligible to vote. So uh, given that, uh, what they do is they send out a postcard once a year or they use the U.S. Postal Service system to send everyone a notice that it's time for the, what we call the annual canvas. This is done every year in every town. And they ask you to send back a note to them, send the postcard back if you are still at that address. 
Um, then if you don't return the postcard and then you don't show up for two successive statewide elections, you are moved to what we call the inactive list. It doesn't mean you can't vote, but it does mean that if you show up to vote after those two statewide elections, so that means after four years, you can still vote, but you have to provide additional identification. So it's a pretty thorough system. Uh, there are problems with, uh, for example, citizens who die in another state. We are not notified, but we are a member of something called ERIC, which is a national uh, system that allows us to get information from other states. That information goes directly to the towns, to the registrars, so they can check off people and remove them if they have passed away in another state. You know, so there's a lot of effort we go through uh, in every town to do this, but still there will be a certain percentage, a small percentage, but still a number of people who are probably not on the list appropriately. So uh, like I say, we do our best. I think our lists are some of the cleanest, certainly in New England. We actually got recognized for that not long ago. And the fact that we sent out these applications for ballots this year for the first time, not the ballots, we sent out applications because we needed to let people know about the changes to the rules. And that way we did get some back that were undeliverable, which we sent to the towns and they were able to remove them from the list. So actually our lists are better than ever, really. You can ask a question of Secretary Merrill at 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, when we think about uh, the amount of work needed uh, to help uh, with the record number of absentee ballots, you had uh, cooperation from registrars and town clerks and, uh, again, also money uh, from uh, the state and federal government to help with this process. And so something that when you think about how to make this permanent, besides the legislature voting, what else needs uh, to happen? Oh, yes, it was a tremendous undertaking because, you know, honestly, we're not set up for that many absentee ballots with our current system, largely because we have so many checks and balances to make sure that the person sending in the absentee ballot is who they say they are. Um, but that all takes time and, yes, a lot of money. Um, and we fortunately got a CARES Act grant to help us with this process this year. So we were able to uh, send uh, several million dollars out to the towns so they could hire us extra help, for example, in the clerk's office. It's the town clerks that handle the absentee ballots. And they, I can't say enough about what a tremendous job they did ramping up for this, because as I say, it was it's not usual for us. Not to say that we couldn't do it again, but we would have to shift resources into this area I think there'd be savings in other places perhaps, but um, we would have to change the way we do some things. And actually we need a lot more technology. I mean, I think it's ridiculous that we still have to send uh, applications out on paper to people and that they have to send it back on paper. Uh, we should have a way that we can get people their application for a ballot if they request it online, for example. I mean, we do everything online now. So those are some of the things I'd like to see change if we're going in this direction, which I really think we should. People want this. They deserve the flexibility.
Uh, if our listeners are among those who want to see absentee ballots be a permanent option, no excuse absentee ballots, we'd love to hear from you at 888-720-9677. Also questions about early voting, you can also join us, 888-720-WMPR. So talk about the proposals before the legislature and what mechanisms, once they vote, what needs to happen for this to be uh, a permanent option for voters in our state? Secretary Merrill. Well, yes, as I was saying, you know, these these uh, restrictions are in our state constitution. Uh, one of them is that you only vote on election day, Tuesday in November. Uh, if we wanted to vote on more days besides election day, we would have to pass a constitutional amendment that would simply remove that language from the constitution. It would still be in statute, but that way we could change it if we wanted to, and it's just permissive. So that's one proposal we have. It's been around for a while. It passed uh, with very large numbers last year in the legislature. But to change the state constitution, you need to pass it through the legislature twice, unless you get 75% vote, which is very, very difficult. And then it goes on the ballot and everyone in the state is gonna have the opportunity to vote on these measures. And that would go on the ballot, hopefully in 2022. Uh, But that's the soonest it could go on the ballot for everyone in the state to vote on. Uh, the second constitutional amendment that's needed if we want to have the what we call no-fault absentee balloting. In other words, you wouldn't need an excuse to get an absentee ballot. Anyone could get one if they applied. Uh, that would be um, a new constitutional amendment. It has not been voted on recently. Um, and so that would have to get through the legislature with a vote of 75% in both chambers, which I'm hopeful might happen uh, because people have been, their eyes have been open to this whole situation this year. And then it would go on the ballot also in 2022. Again, the entire state gets to vote on these measures. So it's pretty democratic, I think, to say, you know, you'll all get a chance to weigh in on this. So to recap, for early voting, that already passed the General Assembly in 2019 with a simple majority. It needs to pass again this session for the question to be before voters next year, Secretary Merrill? That's correct. And then with no excuse absentee ballots, that would need to pass the legislature this session with a supermajority. And does that have to also be voted on twice before it heads to the ballot as well? No, if it gets a supermajority, then it would also go on the ballot uh, with the early voting one in 2022. Uh, If it gets a simple majority, then it has to go back to another legislature. So not even just next year, it would have to go back uh, to a different legislature in two years, and then it wouldn't be on the ballot until 2024. So there's a possibility, Secretary Merrill, that, you know, COVID uh, and this pandemic continues for the the next uh, election. Is this something that could still be done again on emergency basis? No excuse absentee ballot for the future. Yes, and I'm actually terribly concerned about, you know, we we always have, there's already a special election in Stanford uh, to fill a vacancy in the state Senate. Uh, There's liable to be other uh, elections during this period, and several towns have May elections. So we're still not out of the woods on all this. 
And uh, the governor has just issued an executive order uh, to extend those, uh, you know, lifting of the restrictions for those towns. But, you know, his, his emergency powers do give out <laughs> at some point. And so the legislature, there is a bill before the legislature to also, again, use an, um, sort of an emergency situation and extend this for the next election. But, you know, we don't know where we're going to be by November. Uh, and that's why this, this so much needs to be a permanent change. Uh, this may not be the last emergency we have either. You know, even in my term of office, the last 10 years, I've had several situations where we had major storms. I mean, we've already kind of forgotten Storm Sandy. And back in 2012, we had another one where we had polling places that had no power. They were underwater in some cases. Uh, so we have lots of different situations that come up that need flexibility. And that's sort of my argument for all this. It's not whether we do it one way or another. It's that we have to have the ability to move if there's an emergency like this. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677. You mentioned Stanford. Uh, Lynn's calling from Stanford with a question. Go ahead, Lynn. Oh, hi. Um, thanks for taking my call. Um, I may have missed this while I was speaking to the screener, but um, I got a letter for an application for an absentee ballot for the 27th state uh, Senate seat. And um, it mentions in it that if you have underlying risk factors relevant to COVID-19, you, you can request to receive an absentee ballot. But it only says if, if, if you believe that your illness would prevent you from appearing to vote in person. And I have no underlying illnesses, but I'm over 65. Does that qualify me to get an absentee ballot? I mean, the, to vote legally, absentee? Well, it would not have under that opinion, which uh, we clarified what the current law is under the state constitution. And we think that would include, uh, because one of the restrictions is you can get an absentee ballot even under our state constitution due to, if you are unable to get to the polls due to sickness. Now, so that's the big question. And we sat around stroking our chins quite a long time about what does that really mean in a situation like this? And so I wrote an opinion uh, from my office that said, well, we defined sickness as if you had an underlying sickness that would qualify. But all of that now may be um, overridden, shall we say, by the governor's executive order. So it means that you are probably fine now getting an absentee ballot, even if you don't have an underlying illness, uh, because he just issued an executive order last week that says that it, that extends the same um, ability to get an absentee ballot to anyone during COVID. So you're fine. <laughs> Lynn, does that answer your question? Ab absentee. So I can, even though I yeah. don't have an underlying illness. Okay. If, if I'm over Correct. 65, it's okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay, great. Okay. Thank you so much. You're and you can you can join our conversation with Secretary of the State Denise Merrill at eight 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 seven two zero nine six seven seven or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. You know, we did reach out to the Registrar of Voters Association as well as the Connecticut Town Clerks Association about these proposals again uh, to expand uh, no excuse absentee ballots as well as early voting. Um, Anna Posniak uh, wrote and said that for years the Town Clerks Association has supported modernizing our state's election system with early 
in-person voting as a means to give voters more flexibility and convenience in casting their ballot. And our ability to successfully administer the absentee ballot process was largely due to federal and private grant funds, as we mentioned earlier, Secretary Merrill. But she writes, unfortunately, the much-needed funds and physical office space will present a serious dilemma for cities and towns as they administer no-excuse absentee voting in a post-COVID world. So the association strongly supports expanded absentee voting in conjunction with early in-person voting to mitigate the impact absentee voting will have on any election. So what is your response to that, uh, Secretary Merrill? Again, they want to see both versus one because they understand that, you know, even if you expand no excuse absentee ballots, it's going to put a significant burden on these town clerks around our state if they don't have the right resources. Yeah, I I absolutely agree with them. I think both ought to be available. I think the broadest uh, flexibility we can get is the best because we need to take the pressure off election day. I mean, just imagine if those that 35% of people voted voting by absentee ballot had voted in person. Imagine, I mean, frankly, if we had done that during the primary, we, we would have had something one of my colleagues called a humanitarian crisis because people would have been going to the polls and getting sick, potentially, or frankly, not voting at all, which might have been an option for people. Uh, so neither of those things were desirable. And I agree that we ought to have both early voting, which obviously takes pressure off election day because people can vote in person at the town clerk's office uh, on different days besides election day. But I think we have, uh, shall we say, many years where we can design a system that will work for everyone. For one thing, we need much more technology involved in some of this. Uh, We could make it a lot easier on the town clerks and on the registrars if we modernize some of our systems. And that's what I'm going to work on from now forward. And just to clarify, when Lynn called earlier from Stanford, I wanted to know if she could vote in absentee ballot uh, for a special election, even though she doesn't have an illness. You had said that the executive order allows her to do so. She mentioned being over 65, but age doesn't is not a factor, correct? It's just if they feel like it would be safer for them to vote by absentee, they're able to do so under the executive order, Secretary Merrill? That's correct. All of this is really in the hands of the voter to decide what they feel is their circumstance. And so that's what the executive order has done. It's allowed voters to make that choice. Um, before, we, we don't have the flexibility under the Constitution because ours is not, the, the limitations on the Constitution have, have nothing to do with age. Some states do. For example, in Tennessee, you are you can automatically get an absentee ballot if you're over 65, period. Uh, it's not in their Constitution. It's, it's in their state statute, uh, which is where I think all these rules belong. So you can change them if you need to. Um, but that's, yeah, age is not a criterion in our state constitution. It's sickness or the one that people mostly think about is you're out of town all hours of election day on election day. And so as a result, uh, actually the heaviest usage we have of absentee ballots in a normal election is Fairfield County. And I suspect that's because a lot of people commute to New York and are not available to vote during the day, uh, all hours of the polling place. So uh, those are the rules that I think should be uh, in, in statute rather than in the Constitution. Therefore, we could change them if we needed to. 
You can join our conversation as we talk about the future of voting with Connecticut Secretary of the State Denise Merrill, 888-720-9677. Brian's calling in from Norwich. Brian, go ahead with your question. Good morning, and thank you for taking my call. Um, my question is regarding constitutionality of would it be possible to turn Election Day into a state holiday to further take some of the pressure off? I really like doing absentee. It worked great, but I know a lot of other people still like to vote in person. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Brian. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we could make it a state holiday, um, but we would still have to make changes to our state constitution. Uh, and the other problem is uh, there it's a federal holiday. It would have to be a federal holiday because many of the offices we vote for on Election Day are federal offices. Uh, Congress people, this year president. Uh, and so it would be... Um, it would be difficult to have one state have a different uh, holiday for voting uh, than others. And in fact, at the federal level, they're trying to standardize these things. But obviously, if we had early voting and other days of voting, uh, that wouldn't be a problem either. That's always been my argument for early voting is that there's lots of people who can't take the day off to go vote. And especially my particular, the thing I hate the most is long lines. That's that's simply like uh, taking someone's vote away. It's disenfranchising people. You shouldn't have to stand in line to vote for even an hour is too long. Uh, so that, that's another great argument for early voting is that, you know, you could stagger the voting process maybe over three or five days. There might be a weekend day to vote, for example. Many states have that. Uh, some states have long periods of early voting. I'm not sure I'm in favor of that. But Texas has 30 days of early voting. Uh, so there's a lot of different ways to do it that I think all would have the same effect. Um, but I love the idea of having voting be a, a holiday. I think it should be a federal holiday. Maybe it should be 4th of July. Maybe it should be an existing holiday. How about Veterans Day? It's a week later. What, great, what, what a great way to honor veterans, have everyone go vote on Veterans Day. So there's lots of options. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucien Alpathanchel. My guest today, Denise Merrill, Connecticut Secretary of the State, who has renewed calls for the General Assembly to pass two proposals to make voting easier. If legislators approve the measures with sufficient support, referenda would then go to voters before early voting or no-excuse absentee ballots are permitted. Now, coming up, we hear more from her and talk about efforts to help some residents who've been disenfranchised. Do you have a question? You can join us, 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. Secretary of the State Denise Merrill is not the only one pushing for Connecticut to permit early voting and no-excuse absentee ballots permanently. More than 80 groups have signed on to a letter to the Connecticut General Assembly to show their support. They include the ACLU of Connecticut, who wants to see the state change laws that currently restrict people who've been incarcerated from voting. The sentencing project finds one out of 44 adults has been disenfranchised 
arise due to a current or previous felony conviction. That's nationwide. What does that look like here in Connecticut? Joining our conversation now on the phone is Kelly Moore, Policy Counsel for the ACLU of Connecticut. Kelly, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks, Lucy, for having me. So when we think about uh, this letter that went to the legislature uh, calling for historic voting rights agenda, uh, several uh, measures mentioned, including early voting and no excuse absentee ballot. But the ACLU of Connecticut has joined with other groups related to our criminal justice system and restoring voting rights to parolees. So tell us what the law, how they're currently treated and what needs to change. So right now, people who are on parole in Connecticut are not eligible to vote. And this creates a kind of strange dichotomy where people who are on probation are allowed to vote, but people who are on parole aren't allowed to vote. And basically, the difference is that people who are on probation have had probation sentenced by a judge at the start of their incarceration, where people on parole get parole uh, from their sentence at the end by an executive agency. They're both people who continue to be under supervision but have been released into the community. And there's not really any good reason for this false dichotomy. So we're calling for the end to the disenfranchisement of people on parole. Mm -hmm. And so the legislature would have to pass a law to permit uh, people on parole to also be able uh, to vote, Kelly? Exactly right, yes. And Secretary Merrill, what's your response to that? It does seem strange that those on probation can vote, but on parole can't. Uh, I'm just curious what your stance is on, on this particular issue. I have proposed exactly that for the past few years, and it is included in another proposal I have before the General Assembly that would do exactly that. And I think that's correct. It's it's very confusing to people. The biggest problem we have for folks who have been imprisoned and are now out is that they're they're nervous, they're scared, they don't know that they're eligible to vote again. And we have to do a great deal of outreach to make sure they understand that they do have a right to vote back. But it is confusing when one group who's in the community, these are all people back in the community, uh, and that's my argument, is if they're in the community, they are, they're back, they're citizens, and they have a right to vote. And it does create a lot of confusion for those people not knowing it's another another obstacle, if you will, another barrier to their getting their uh, voting rights back. Mm-hmm. And Kelly Moore from the ACLU, can you also talk about uh, there is a process in the state, maybe you could shed some light on this for us, where uh, those who want their voting rights restored, people with felony convictions after parole, they still have to pay fines and fees. Can you uh, up to update us on what this means and how that impacts an already complicated reentry process for so many? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you really said it, Lucy. There is a complicated process where folks have to sometimes pay outstanding fines and fees. Um, It's not transparent. Uh, People don't have a clear path to get through this. And so just as Secretary Merrill said, it creates a lot of confusion and folks don't know if they're eligible to vote. Uh, They're scared to vote. And the thing I really want to highlight here is that because of systemic racism in our criminal legal system, this is something that has a disproportionate effect on black and brown people in Connecticut. So when we talk about the ways that we're disenfranchising people because they've been entangled with the criminal legal system, we're really talking about um, this is something that that is a racial justice question, honestly. Um, and so uh, like like many forms of voter suppression, this is another one that targets black people, targets brown people. And so it's something that really needs to change. 
You know, when we talk about the, the population impacted, Kelly, you're right. And I'm wondering if you could also talk a little bit about uh, this uh, prison gerrymandering, which, uh, again, where the location of prisons in Connecticut, primarily in uh, white uh, towns, yet those who are incarcerated, um, they're not able um, to vote there. I'm just wondering if you can talk more about how this impacts uh, what we're talking about in terms of uh, the systemic issues. Yeah, it's absolutely a problem. Um, the way that people are counted by the census when they're incarcerated is that the moment that the counting occurs, their physical location right now is where their population is apportioned to. So if they're in a prison in a predominantly white area, like most prisons in Connecticut, their, uh, their numbers are used to bulk up those cities and towns where the the prison is, as opposed to the place in the community where that person is from and in all likelihood will return. Um, so what this, this system of counting does is it inflates the size of white towns that have prisons at the expense of predominantly the cities in Connecticut where uh, people who are incarcerated here are disproportionately from. So this is, uh, again, another racial justice question, and it's, uh, it's a way of diluting the representation in cities and towns and um, increasing representation given to prison cities. And it's something that we have a narrow window here to change. You know, as everybody knows, the census only happens 10 ye- every 10 years. We just had one in 2020. Unfortunately, um, the census this year has been conducted in such a way that we would be able to apportion people to their communities that they come from and will likely return to, as opposed to the prisons where they're presently housed, if the legislature could pass a law saying that that is how we will count our population in the census. Um, So we're calling on the General Assembly this year to pass a law to end prison gerrymandering and count people in the communities that they come from. Mm. Secretary Merrill, what's your take on this? Well, I haven't really studied that part of it since it's really more about, uh, um, actually, it's about funding when you get right down to it. That's why the suburban towns that have these prisons uh, fight so hard to keep that population counted in their district. And so whenever you're talking about substantial amounts of funding under the pilot grant, there's a special grant called the Prison Pilot Grant uh, that's, that's, uh, that money is given out based on those populations. It, that's why it's such a fight in the General Assembly. Um, it's, it's difficult to know, you know, are you going to count people in their, quote, hometown when they've been in prison for 25 years, sometimes it's hard to determine. But I do think it's unfair that they're all counted in an area where they can't vote. Uh, and and no one has suggested in Connecticut that people actually in prison be able to vote. So uh, it does seem very unfair to me that uh, I haven't really weighed in on it, but um, I think at bottom the issue is about funding. Uh, Kelly, again, changing the rules to how incarcerated individuals are counted in our state, I believe that was uh, in the a bill last session. Is that something that's been reintroduced this session? Yes, we've seen it uh, be raised by a couple of legislators uh, this year. It isn't yet set for public hearing, but we're optimistic that there's a lot of momentum behind it because I think our lawmakers really recognize the, the narrow window to act here before we're shut out of taking action for another decade. That's Kelly Moore again, who is policy counsel for the ACLU of Connecticut. Thank you for talking about these other measures that uh, groups in the state are advocating for with the legislature in session. Kelly, thanks for your time. We appreciate it. 
Thanks, Lucy, and thanks to Secretary Merrill for really um, advocating for early and absentee, no excuse, absentee voting. These are important issues that also have a racial justice component to them. And so I'm really happy to hear her advocating so strongly for them. Uh, we have one more question for Secretary Merrill. Uh, Gary is calling in from Scotland. Are you still there, Gary? Oh, doesn't look like uh, Gary is there anymore. But uh, the question that I see, uh, he wanted to know, uh, Secretary Merrill, any plans to facilitate voting in online town meetings? They have no way of doing this. Oh, yes. This is an, uh, another big issue that has come up since it's been so difficult to hold town meetings during COVID. And again, uh, we are not set up to do uh, online voting uh, in any way because it's so difficult to check to see who is doing the voting. I know some towns have come up with a way of doing it, um, but that's the impediment and that's something we're gonna need to work on. But again, we haven't been able to really come up with a good way to do it uh, within this short window of time. Uh, So since we don't really oversee uh, local elections, um, I know I know it's out there as an issue. I've been contacted because, you know, this year is the year of local elections. So um, we haven't, to be honest, we have not really come up with a good solution to that. It probably cries out for some techni- technological solution where somehow you could have a login system, but it's difficult when it's an entire town, for example. But thanks for asking the question. We need to pay attention to this. I wish I had an answer for you, but I really don't. And then one another question uh, quickly, Secretary Merrill, Seth emailed, says Connecticut seems to have a very long time period compared to other states before elections when you have to decide which party to sign up for. Uh, Seth writes, this seems bad for democracy. Can this period be shortened? Um, actually, the period is only in place for someone who wants to switch parties. So uh, actually you can sign up, uh, if you're an unaffiliated voter and you wish to sign up with a party, there's a very short window to do that. The long window is the three month waiting period uh, between when, uh, if you wanna switch parties. And that was put into place, I understand, because years ago people worried that uh, one party would try to throw the other party's election by you know, quickly having all their members sign up for that party and uh, you know, mess it up, basically. Uh, I I don't know if that's ever actually happened or even if it was a a legitimate concern, but um, yes, it could be changed. Um, It could be changed uh, by the legislature. I don't know that anyone has proposed it recently, but uh, that's, that's how it would have to be changed through legislation. You're hearing Secretary of the State Denise Merrill here on Where We Live. We thank you for your time, and I'm sure we'll be reaching out to you before June to see what happens with both early voting and no-excuse absentee ballots. Thank you, Secretary Merrill. Oh, thank you so much, Lucy. Great to be here. Coming up, we're going to switch gears and talk about President Biden, who has signed many executive orders in his short time in office. We're going to talk to a law professor about it right after the break. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, more than 40 million Americans have student loan debt. We're going to talk about efforts to cancel student debt, what it means for borrowers and lenders. And you can join us, too, that conversation tomorrow. Now, President Joe Biden has been busy since Inauguration Day. He's signed, I think, 48 executive orders in his first 16 days in office. Is this any different from previous administrations? And what does this say about how he'll work with Congress over the next several months? Joining us now on Zoom. Christina Rodriguez, professor at Yale Law School. She's co-author of The President and Immigration Law. Christina, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So the the sheer volume of executive orders, people might be wondering, this seems like a lot for just uh, less than one month in office. How does this compare to other administrations, Christina? President Biden has certainly issued more executive actions than his immediate predecessors and has equaled President Roosevelt in the first month of office. But I think more important than the volume is really diving into the content of the executive orders, presidential proclamations, memoranda, and letters to see what it is that he's trying to accomplish. So what stands out to you? There's a quote from President Biden uh, who said, I'm not making new law, I'm eliminating bad policy. And so when we look at the uh, amount of executive orders and proclamations, what stands out to you in terms of this bad policy that President Biden is referring to? It's very clear the new administration is trying to undo the acts of its predecessor. And because this administration as a policy matter and in terms of tone and principle is so dramatically different from the predecessor that there are a high number of executive actions. But much of what he is doing, all of what he's doing, as a matter of fact, is within existing executive authorities. And I think, again, it's important not to get distracted by the high number in thinking that somehow President Biden is acting unilaterally without legal authority. Everything is pursuant to some legal authority or is a form of directing the executive branch and the agencies within it to exercise the authorities that they have pursuant to statutes to undo predecessor policies and to initiate new policy processes of their own. Some Republicans, as you mentioned, are are looking at the sheer number, but do they have a point when we think about these executive actions aren't a substitute for real legislation and how you uh, weave through a lot of the bureaucratic uh, complications under the former administrations if you really want to make change, Christina? I think that legislation is, in some sense, the gold standard for, for change, and much of what this administration would like to accomplish will not be enduring unless there is legislative transformation. But I don't think that we should think of these executive actions as symbolic or as not having effects on the lives of Americans or on the, the our policy horizons, because many of the orders direct executive officials who have statutory authorities to take steps to promulgate regulations, undo prior precedents, and advance Uh, a policy agenda from within the executive branch in ways that even if they could be undone by a successor administration would be difficult to undo. And at least over the next four years will make a significant dent in the variety of policy goals the administration has from racial justice to combating climate change to revamping the immigration system. So I would see these executive orders as complements to the legislative process, not substitutes for them, but complements that can actually get real things accomplished. Let's focus on immigration. That is uh, your focus when we think about um, some of the recent executive orders and how that'll impact, um, say, uh, those that um, did once benefit under DACA. 
So one of the first announcements the president made, this was in uh, one of the memoranda, was the administration's commitment to fortifying DACA. And uh, DACA, which has become kind of a household acronym, is a program that insulates a certain subset of the unauthorized population, those who came to the United States as youth, from removal and provides them with work authorization. It's an executive program that the Trump administration attempted to undo, was unsuccessful, and was pushed back in court for a variety of reasons over the course of three and a half years. Uh, this is one good example, though, of an executive action that by itself will not truly transform the lives of the people it's meant to assist. Uh, the first reason is that it's vulnerable in court. It's being challenged uh, as a legal matter by states like Texas in litigation that is ongoing. Uh, but secondly, the president, uh, neither Obama nor Biden, uh, has ever purported to give actual legal status to the people who are beneficiaries. Only Congress can do that. And in fact, a legalization program for the so-called dreamers, as well as for others who are here without legal status, is a part of the legislative proposal that the Biden administration has sent to Congress and would like to see enacted. So the two are, are working in, in tandem, though DACA itself uh, is unstable precisely because it's uh, at, at the mercy of the courts. I thought it was interesting when you began, when I asked the question about how President Biden's actions compared to other presidents, you mentioned FDR. So these are two presidents who are facing multiple crises at once. And we think about the pandemic today, Christina. That's right. And executive action is often a response to crisis. A significant number of the orders that President Biden has issued address a series of crises that he has outlined, that he outlined throughout the campaign and that are at the forefront of his administration's agenda. And of course, of course the, the COVID-19 pandemic is chief among them. And many of the orders are designed to do everything within the power of the federal government to address that, that particular problem. Uh, there are, there's also an economic crisis, and clearly the administration is working on the legislative track to address that, but looking for ways to address it through executive action as well. But I do think we are at a moment in our history, and, and perhaps we can trace its origins back to, to FDR, where executive action to promote policy change and to address the problems of the social order is a central component of government. And uh, that that is not a brand new development, but I think it's one that we're seeing uh, to a significant extent reflected in the approach the new president is taking. Even after 9-11, we saw President George W. Bush putting out a lot of executive action, Christina, to deal with uh, the crisis that we were in then. That's right. And in that particular conflict, the source of much of the president's authority was his foreign affairs power and authorities he had as a commander in chief. Those were the authorities that were, were claimed. And today we're seeing the president claim different sorts of authorities, but there are steps um, for the executive to take in the face of multiple crises. Some of them are authorities granted by Congress, other authorities granted by the Constitution. And it, it makes sense for a new and energetic president to utilize them to address the problems the country is facing. Going back to immigration, when we think about the, the Democratic majority in Congress, it is slim. Do you anticipate seeing more gridlock? I think so, uh, precisely because it's slim and it seems as if there is not an interest by certain senators in doing away with the filibuster, which is what stands in the way more than anything of 
legislative change. Uh, so even though there is a slim Democratic majority, uh, with the commitment to the filibuster, it will be exceedingly difficult to enact legislation. And many of the proposals the administration will send to Congress uh, will be expressions of aspiration. Some of them could result in bargains, uh, scaling back of the ambitions of the, the administration in response to the interests of the other party and centrists within the Democratic Party. But I do think that across the board, uh, the legislation that he's proposing faces a, a lot of barriers and that you're, you're likely to see continued use of executive authorities in order to, to manage the crises that the country faces and to, and to continue to advance the policy agenda the administration is clearly committed to and is clearly articulated. We just have a couple of minutes left. When we think about the amount of executive orders, uh, if an, a new president were to come in four years from now, much easier to overturn executive actions versus substantive law that's passed through Congress, Christina? That is generally true, though I think we have to distinguish among executive orders and executive actions. There are some actions that are within the authority of the president, him or herself, and those can be quickly undone by a successor, such as leaving the World Health Organization or leaving the Paris Accord or the proclamations that Trump issued excluding the entry of certain immigrants, the so-called entry bans or Muslim bans. Those can easily be reversed, though, of course, there's damage done in the interim. But a lot of what happens through the the executive branch happens through the bureaucracy. It happens through rules, through policies, through changes in day-to-day -day practice. And, and those can take much longer to undo. So much of what President Trump did to transform different regulatory systems, like the immigration system is the best example, but uh, environmental protection, labor protections, those will take time for the new administration to unwind and, and replace with something that's more fitting with the administration's agenda because procedures have to be followed. There are so many of them uh, diffused throughout the bureaucracy that just the very act of figuring out what has to be accomplished will itself take time. And those forms of change are stickier and uh, in part are the reason why executive action is not something that is purely ephemeral, but can in fact make meaningful change and, and long-lasting change. So of course, it is never a, a substitute for legislative mm -hmm. transformation. Thank you for the context, Christina Rodriguez, professor at Yale Law School. Again, she's also co-author of the book, The President and Immigration Law. We appreciate your time, Christina. Thank you so much. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Tess Terrible is on the phones today. Be back tomorrow.